Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Jeremy Raj, Head of Residential Property here at Erwin Mitchell, and I'll be your host today as we discuss elements of the ongoing cladding crisis. We're following up on our roundtable event of about a month ago, which was in turn followed by our report, which is available on our website and includes our 10-point plan of suggestions for government and the industry, many of which have been quoted in the national and industry press. As a result, we wanted to pick up on some of the issues relating to the cladding scandal in more detail, as well as answering some of the questions we didn't have time to deal with during the roundtable event. I'm accordingly delighted to introduce my two guests, who between them have a wealth of experience in the property industry and whose backgrounds enable us to draw on their differing perspectives. Firstly, we have Julia Webb, who is Group Building Surveyor at Dorrington PLC, one of the country's largest and best respected property owners and investors. Dorrington have a very strong reputation for looking after their residents and their buildings, of course, which is Julia's purview, across an extensive portfolio. Julia is also Vice Chair of the British Property Federation's Building Safety Sounding Board, which is closely involved with the cladding issues we will be discussing. In addition to Julia, I'm joined by Chris Baker, an Irwin Mitchell partner with a long history of advising local authorities, house builders, investors, and also tenant groups. So he has a practical knowledge of acting for all sides of the industry and an excellent perspective on the issues that have sadly come to the fore in relation to the cladding scandal. So Julia and Chris, let's get started. And and Chris, if I may, I'll, I'll start with you. One of the worst issues that has followed Grenfell is the fact that people have been presented with huge service charge bills and or their flats have been given zero valuations. What's actually happening out there on that front? Well, thank you, Jeremy. Yes, that's true. I think we need to remember that there is very much a human element to this whole process. Uh, not only the original Grenfell tragedy, of course, but the fact that people now um, are being impacted by the consequences of that. Because the, uh, the the result of the investigation into, into Granville discovered lots of flammable, effectively, cladding and a number of buildings, which has to be replaced. And someone has to pay for it. So there is there is access to the government funding, which isn't available for everybody. It somebody depends on the size of the building, the height of the building, the number of stories you've got. Some, there are grants available. There are loans in some cases, essentially. If the grant isn't available or doesn't come through in time, someone has to pay for this work to be done before anyone can sell their flats in that building. And that's where the large service charge bills come in, which are a blight on, on, on the property because no one's going to buy a flat with a huge service charge bill hanging over heads. Sometimes there will be instalments, but instalments can go on for years. So it's, it's, it really is a problem as yeah. to how it's sold. Absolutely. And that's something we've seen in the market, isn't it, with people simply being unable to pay uh, for those huge costs. Moving on to service charge consultations, Chris, um, you have a a long history of of dealing with what are known as Section 20 notices. Can you tell us a little bit about them, please? Yes. Essentially, where a landlord wants to carry out what are called major works to a building, uh, and that means works costing more than £250 per flat, it has to consult with the lessees before it's able to carry out those works. And if it doesn't, it then can't recover the cost. So it's it's a fairly long-winded process, not necessarily 
appropriate for where we need to carry out remedial work quickly to buildings, but it is the, the, the time limits and the process have to be followed. And uh, basically the lessees get a whole package of papers which give details of the proposals, various stages of this consultation, uh, and they are able to input into those that they see fit, they're able to put forward their own proposal. But at the end of the day, the landlord, having followed the procedure correctly, will then be able to carry out work and recharge the cost of the lessees under the service charge provisions in the lease. And that's where these um, large bills come in. Yes, thank you. And I think that brings me neatly on to Julia. Dorrington obviously has to go through the Section 20 procedure. As a responsible landlord, I've no doubt you follow the procedures carefully. In terms of planning ahead and consulting, it must allow you to run the portfolio well, but there is also an issue here in relation to cladding of emergency repairs. How have you found that? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Um, I think we have always found the Section 20 uh, process to be um, quite helpful for us in terms of planning ahead and consulting with residents and involving them in in the process of, of keeping the building in repair. But we have also had trouble getting emergency um, dispensation for the consultation period for very serious building defects in the past. And clearly the cladding aspects are something where you would need a, a dispensation. Um, it doesn't apply to any of our buildings, but you know that process in terms of the costs and the timescales is, is very prohibitive. Yeah, clearly, because people are racking up huge amounts of costs in relation to waking watches uh, and other temporary measures. But they're also saying we need to get on with fixing these things quickly. Um, That does bring us on to the government fund. I know, Julia, that the BPF have have got a lot of members who are trying to access the fund. What's what's the talk amongst your your members there about how they find accessing, accessing the fund? Yeah, I, I think there was a lot of concern initially that um, the fund was not going to be adequate to cover all the buildings that um, were non-ACM um, in terms of remediation. And also, as they went through the process of, of, of meeting the timescales and the dates for registration and then going through the process of, of um, making the applications, they were finding that it was very protracted and difficult process and and that was coming from their solicitors not not even kind of property managers so you know i think they've cert- the government has certainly made it a very difficult process to to navigate and to comply with in order to to get the funding that is available absolutely i mean in in our roundtable and both the follow up report we we paid quite a lot of attention to the difficulties that there are in accessing the fund and that was from a professional's point of view. So it's interesting to hear your take, Julia. But Chris, you also act for groups of tenants. Um, you mentioned earlier the Section 20 process by which people need to go through serving formal notices, that sort of thing. Can you just tell us a bit about what the average groups of tenants in blocks feel about both the Section 20 process and accessing the fund? Is it clear to people? Does it need clarifying? Answering the second question first, absolutely needs clarifying. The original process, which the government introduced was a bit Byzantine, it was very difficult to understand and very difficult to get them to give out any money. As Julia said, it is, it is changing. Uh, it has to really, because people do need to access that money without having to go through a hundred different hoops. In terms of the consultation process, yes, I, I've acted for both landlords and tenants on that. 
it depends on the individual point of view. But I think a lot of a lot of lessees find the process quite complicated even now because they're bombarded with lots of bits of information. It's useful for landlords and, it, and it's, it's essential for landlords in order to get the, the service charges paid. But it is quite difficult for lessees too. And um, we are finding in, in, in some of the local authority work I'm doing that the lessees, they may accept it, but they come back later and, and, and they make a tribunal application for, for the, um, to assess the reasonableness of, of those service charges. Because a lot of them just, they get bombarded with this stuff and then they don't really understand it and it gets put in a drawer. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it is it is a, a hugely complex system, both mm. in terms of normal service charges, um, particularly when you come to something as potentially expensive and difficult as the cladding remediation work, but also accessing the fund. And, and clearly, that's why we focused on trying to make that a bit a bit clearer. So I'd like to move now from from the sort of bigger picture stuff to what might sound like uh, smaller issues. Uh, of doors and sprinklers. Julia, can I come back to you? Um, doors and sprinklers, why are they an issue in relation to cladding? Um, they're really uh, an issue in terms of the, the kind of holistic view of the building itself, which I think you always need to take when you're, when you're looking at a building that is a high-risk building. So sprinklers are now required in buildings with any floor over 11 metres. So that's when you're a new build or material alterations, material changes of use and extensions, but significantly not refurbishment. You know, all four sprinklers, I think they're very effective. You, you know, you hear it kind of destroys the building, the whole of the building goes off as, with a sprinkler, but sprinklers are, are designed to trigger in isolation adjacent to a, to a source of ignition. So somewhere in the region of 68 degrees Fahrenheit and only those sprinklers in that, that area will, will trigger. And that will control the fire very effectively and stop it spreading and stop loss of life and loss, loss of property. Um, and in your opinion, would that have assisted at Grenfell? Un undoubtedly, really. Yeah. 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 And so it's been seized upon as, as something that we really should prioritise. Doors similarly, um, you know, from your perspective as, as an experienced building surveyor, um, how, how do they fit into the picture? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the kind of fire risk assessment when we look at, at making sure that the means of escape from any building is adequate. So you have either got a, a building where people have a simultaneous escape uh, situation where you have a building fire, fire detection alarm system. So when that triggers, everyone escapes from the building or that section of the building. Now, that means that those fire escape routes have to be um, integral. So flat doors are obviously a, a um, weak point and have to be fire resisting to keep the fire behind the door so as not to block that means of escape. So also with a, a building where you're, you've got a what we term a stay put policy, which is where you have alternative means of escape um, and a good route for evacuation, then in the event of a fire, that building doesn't have a simultaneous fire detection alarm system. So people stay in their flats and the compartmentation within that, around that flat has to, has to stay integral for 30 or 60 minutes to allow the fire brigade to, to come and rescue them or to advise them to evacuate. So what we find is many of the blocks have a fire door as the flat 
entrance door, but in, in older blocks, they, do not, they still do not provide 30-minute fire resistance. So they have to be upgraded, and now they have to be replaced with a certified door. The problem being, that door is usually demised to the leaseholder, and the landlord have no authority to, to replace that door. And we need to see changes, really, in the legislation well, to allow that. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. And Chris, I'd like to bring you in here. I mean, the legal framework for um, not necessarily relevant here, but windows, doors, sprinkler systems is a little difficult for lay people to understand. But I do know that you've got some personal experience of dealing with these sorts of issues. Do you want to talk us through that? Yes, yeah, so this, this boils down to the uh, provisions in leases, really because the landlord has certain rights to enter premises into flats in, set out in the lease. And those are limited to certain uh, particular specific uh, circumstances. In my experience, uh, we've done a couple of uh, attempts to change putting fire safety uh, measures in, in flats. So, for example, in, in one particularly uh, grand square in London where we're acting for the freeholder, the idea was to put sprinklers inside the flats. And the, the landlord wasn't even going to charge the tenants for these, but no one, virtually nobody, would allow access for that to be done unless it, the whole block could be done. It wasn't really worth doing the odd flat. So that, although what, which would have been a, a fantastic uh, safety measure for the for the occupants, that that fell uh, away because no one would agree to letting the the work be done. The second one was uh, with the local authority, where in they have different leases, um, where some of the front doors are part of the demise of the flat and some aren't. And so they wanted to, and then none of the doors were fire compliant in this particular building. I'm not sure why they had different leases, but it's historic. Uh, so they were able to replace the doors which were not demised, uh, but those which were demised to the flat, they were not able to replace. And so that, that meant that, that the, the, in the end, the situation was very unsatisfactory because only half the safety measures had been carried out. So going forward, uh, maybe legislation does need to be introduced as part of the um, raft of new measures coming in by government to allow fire safety works to be carried out and leases to be amended to uh, allow that to happen. Absolutely. I mean, it seems to be in residents' own best interests um, yeah. that if they do perhaps have a neighbour that is refusing to allow this, that landlords can say, well, it's, it's for the safety of everybody. So we really do need to ensure that there is legislative uh, encouragement for landlords to do the right thing by their tenants and also yeah. for blocks where they are owned by groups of tenants um, to allow the works to proceed even if other people object. Um, one of the key government initiatives at the moment is the fire safety bill and fire risk assessments. Julia are you able to give us an update on that please? Yes so uh, the Fire risk assessment was introduced um, by the fire safety order in 2005, I think, and that required the landlord to carry out a fire risk assessment on the building, uh, which really just took in the, the, the means of escape. Now, the, the change with the current fire safety bill is that it will now look also at the external wall cladding, so the external wall enclosure. And I think we, we feel that that is now a, a kind of holistic view of the building itself. So whereas you would have before just looked at the means of escape, the final escape routes, the storage areas, 
It's now a requirement that you're going to look at the external envelope of the building. And I think also we, we are now looking at a sample of, of the flats themselves. So probably getting access to, to probably 10, 20% of the flats every time you do a fire risk assessment to do a visual inspection of the compartmentation within the flat. And I think some of our, my colleagues at um, the BPF uh, are actually looking at uh, a more destructive survey rather than a, a just a visual inspection and taking account of the works that are required to, to upgrade the um, fire safety of the building as a whole, which I think is now covered by the uh, Building Safety Bill that has now introduced a, a separate fund to the service charge for, for, for buildings um, that are, are considered high risk, which allows the landlord to collect a separate fund for matters such as upgrading the, the doors, uh, the flat doors and compartmentation improvements. And I think as that moves on, that will be rolled out to, to buildings that are, are kind of not categorised as high risk, so kind of below 18 metres as well. Absolutely. I mean, clearly, since Grenfell in particular, and in view of all the, the horrific things that have come out in the in the two inquiries, there's been a lot of impetus in government to change the, the legal framework, but also to bring in uh, new documentation, new new safety assessments. One of the key documents that people have heard about and and been discussing is the EWS one. Julia, do you want to give us a little background to what that is, and then Chris, maybe I can bring you in to talk about how that's working in practice. Yes. Yeah, so the EWS one form um, was intended to to allow. Uh, a building owner to confirm to valuers and lenders that were they're making assessment of the value of a flat or, or the building as a whole to establish whether there was any impact on the value of that building in terms of the external wall system. That has now become a, a problem, as we, as we all know, with uh, professionals, building surveyors, fire engineers, other building professionals, not being able to, to issue that EWS1 form. Usually option one would say that you can identify the external wall fabric um, and there's not really any, and then would identify any remedial works required. That could be done usually by a building sphere. Option two could usually be done by a, a qualified fire engineer um, who has more um, knowledge of the, the building cladding system and they would then quantify the, the costs. It transpires that nobody can really get um, insurance to, to complete that EWS1 form. People are very reluctant to do so, obviously, without insurance. And also, you know, even if you could do, you've got to open up every section of the building to make sure you've got fire barriers at every opening, every um, party wall, every floor level. You know, and, and that's a huge undertaking. Absolutely. And, and it's a huge part of it. Now, uh, what's not necessarily known is that when, when people get surveys before they buy flats, they tend to get surveyors, if they do instruct surveyors, just to look at the flat itself. Um, Chris, you will have seen this over the years in relation to people buying flats. Um, it's not a sort of holistic approach. Do we see uh, a change within the industry? Um, I know you mentioned before 
transactions being held up. But how is the the effect of the EWS one playing out in practice? Well, I think there are two issues here. The first is getting the, the uh, EWS form completed in the first place, and they're ignoring the professional indemnity points. The, uh, a flat owner can't rec uh, requisition the EWS survey himself. It has to be done by the building owner. So that if, the, if, if the freeholder, whoever it is, doesn't want to do it, then they're stuck. The, the flat owner can't get the form done and therefore can't sell the flat because no lender is going to lend money without satisfactory uh, EWS1 form. Uh, and secondly, um, it depends on what the form says. If the form says there are problems, then again, you can't sell the flat. And that is almost going, certainly going to lead to what they call the common trend now, zero valuations, so that although the flat isn't worth nothing, it is it is worth effectively nothing to the lender because they, can't, they won't be able to sell it. So they, they won't lend on it. So that um, causes a knock-on effect there. But there, there are two points, really. It's, it's, it's getting the form done in the first place and then dealing with the result of that form if it is done. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I think one of the results of Grenfell is that we've seen a large number of initiatives come through government, not just the EWS1 and the building fund. Julia, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the building safety manager and, and the newly installed chief inspector of buildings. Yes, the chief inspector of buildings, Peter Baker. What a great job title. I think we're all very happy that uh, the the control over building safety is moving back to, to the HSE. And I think um, he's already intimated that building control will move back towards a, a local authority controlled, more local authority controlled type system monitored by the HSE. But uh, the introduce, introduction of the building safety regulator under the HSE will look at actually controlling all of the information that's held initially on a high risk, all, all the high risk buildings. So that's a point. So the, the building owner will need to um, appoint uh, an accountable person and they will be responsible for the appointment of the building safety manager, who may be a person or a company. Again, the, the PI um, issues are still to be sorted out, but their responsibility will be to, to, to submit the safety case um, for the building. So that will be all of the fire risk assessment, all of the holistic view of the fire safety and what will, I think, eventually roll out to asbestos, etc. In terms of the, the building as a whole, that will then be submitted to the building safety regulator who will issue an assurance certificate verifying that the, the building is safe to occupy. You know, going back to, to the original fire certificate principle, really, that um, I think I, I was used to with commercial buildings prior to joining Dorrington. And, you know, without that, that assurance certificate, then the building will not be able to be occupied. And they will have the auspices to issue enforcement notices, which aren't, if aren't complied with, have um, significant fines and even imprisonment for both the building safety manager and the accountable person. Absolutely. I mean, progress is, is not always in a positive direction. Chris, I think uh, you'll allow me to say that your career has been, been long enough for you to have seen previous regimes and in particular the privatisation of building control. Do you, do you have views on that? I think that's probably contributed to the Grenfell issue um, itself because it's not, most privatisations, it's, it's, there's, there's, it's, it's about profit. And uh, I think 
corners have been cut all over the place, which are now being you know revealed by the inspections that are going on uh, in terms of approving works. Uh, and um, that's I mean it's not something said the private sector will always do that, but I think that is clear uh, as a result of what happened at Grenfell that the, 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 the they shouldn't have been certified uh, clearly when it was. So um, there does need to be a revamp of the um, the, the regulation process and um, how that's done, and, and that's certainly one of our our points and our, and our ten points for federation. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and Julia, from the industry's point of view, and, and perhaps with your BPF hat on, is that generally accepted? Certainly, yes. I think from our own experience, I think the enforcement of building control and I think the, the loss of constant kind of um, inspections and even the, the role of the clerk of works, you know, from, from when I've started doing building surveying to now, that kind of disappearance of somebody on site all the time checking the, the, the technical, technical sections of the, the designer enforced has just been lacking. And I think that that needs to be re reintroduced. Sure. Uh, Chris, can I can I turn back to you? Um, uh, a lot of people have will have been reading about common hold, um, leasehold reform uh, and potentially viewing that as a magic solution to the kind of issues that have been thrown up by Grenfell. Uh, is that a view you subscribe to? No, short answer. Common hold originally was introduced in, in 2002 as, as an answer to the deficiencies in the leasehold system, which there are plenty, uh, on the basis it wasn't fit for purpose in the 21st century. Uh, and unfortunately for the people who, who had designed the system, it was a complete flop. So last year, the Law Commission, uh, as part of their wide-ranging uh, proposals for leasehold reform, it was, well, use their words, uh, wanted to reinvigorate common hold. Um, I think resurrect might be a better, better word, but it was, uh, and I think it was some fairly detailed proposals as to how that might work and how it will replace leasehold uh, property. The Essentially, the, the freehold will disappear and the, the flat owners, the unit owners, as they're called, will own the property between them. However, uh, it, what we're talking about here is who pays for remediation work to cladding and other issues with the building. Uh, and that that doesn't, the, the introduction of Commonwealth won't affect that at all. Either it will be the government who put the grant or be the lessees you have to fork it out and ironically under the uh, current common hold system the consultation process is slightly less stringent than it is under the landlord and tenant process but the the government does have the sorry the law commission does have fairly detailed proposals for introducing uh, protections for unit holders in terms of costs just on that point if i can just add another point it, it, there's been a lot of stuff in the press about freeholders being asked to pay for this work which is very short-sighted because freeholders has a whole range of different um, meanings doesn't if it means a developer who originally constructed the building a few years ago then maybe but many freeholds are owned by the residents themselves so the, it doesn't saying that freeholders will pay just means the, the leaseholders will still have to pay and they still have to go through the consultation process and all that that involves together with obtaining grants if they can so that isn't a solution either so no magic answers unfortunately i'm afraid not no well, thank you, Chris and Julia, and that's it for today. Thank you, too, for listening to the Erwin Mitchell podcast. We hope you found it interesting, and if so, please join us for our next episode. We're always happy, too, to hear your suggestions or questions from anything you want to follow up on that we've discussed today. Stay safe.